buddy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Chris. And uh, here we are with our Lord of the Rings-themed podcast. Uh, I'm insert uh, right there. Um beautiful in, in, in editing uh but yeah we are we are joined by by chris uh so so chris uh it is absolutely great to have you on i just want you to know right up front that you cannot fill the void that sam has left behind but you can oh, do your darndest. I, I mean none I of us can my, i will do my darndest but my my voice is is nowhere near majestic enough to uh match sam so i you know he he towers above us all and and all we can do is is grasp at the edges of his shadow um such tall, um, such tall shoulders I stand on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed, uh, Chris. But uh, just, just very briefly, and without being too specific, we met at a conference uh, like probably five years ago now. It's it's been a long time. But yeah, you're you're uh, you're a cool guy. You 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 do mechanical things on top secret objects, which is always a fun fun project. I'm sure that's one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, actually, it might be pretty accurate that, you know, because as we'll see in the article that we'll talk about here in a second, you're actually kind of like an engineer of Isengard. You're basically just building the evil city of man with your dark machinery and uh, mechanisms of war. So you're the yeah, bad guy. I, I wrestle with, with the morality of my, my work every day. But thanks, <laughs> thanks for pointing that out and making me feel awful about my, well, myself. Well, wait, hang on. Just a second, Brevin. You're entering uh, the corporate bureaucracy, or not corporate bureaucracy, sorry, the governmental bureaucracy that Kafka once uh, looked upon and shuddered. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested that uh, you're throwing stones in such a glass house of your own. I mean, I mean, I don't know if it's a difference, but I'm just embracing it. So, you know, like I, I stared into the abyss, the abyss stared back at me and then it flinched. So uh, let's, let's get on to the, to, uh, the most important section of the podcast. Chris, let's lead off with you at the top. What are you drinking right now? Ah, so glad you asked. Um, I am drinking a wonderful Corpse Reviver, number two, of course, um, which is a uh, drink of the finest sort. It has gin, a little bit of um, uh, absinthe sprayed into the glass, mm. and uh, some Lillet Blanc, and um, lemon juice, and orange liqueur. And I being myself, added a egg white into the shaker to make a little bit of a foam on the top. It's extra aesthetic. I wish you could see it. Dang. Yeah, listeners may not be aware, but Chris is actually a master mixologist. Uh, he he makes a few drinks at uh, one of the parties uh, that, that we had a few months ago before I moved, and they were things to behold. Uh, you uh, you really are missing out if you haven't had a drink by Chris. Yes, Chris, uh, you know, his, 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 his fingers are, are just magic on the... <laughs> drink shaker i don't really know that 
I don't really know the circumstances under which anybody would get to taste one of my drinks listening, but... Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, like, we could email them some drinks, I guess. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, know. you know, just like... Yeah, just you know, download them. I, I, I hear that the post office is doing quite well these days, so, you Ooh. know, put it in a box, ship it over. Too uh, soon, man. Too soon. Uh, but speaking of too soon, uh, Stephen, what are you drinking right now? Your transitions are, as always, wonderful. Uh, I, too, am something of a mixologist, and I'm having a lovely... Uh, gin and tonic it's gin and tonic mm. water with a lime so that's about as fancy as i get and there's some ice in it too to be Incredible. fair put it in a couple of ice cubes bold i know right i'm pretty sure we argued about this last time but i i'm having a vodka martini shaken not stirred uh in, in, in classic bond style one of the many fine brits in existence this the focus of this podcast is on another yeah and, and there's also like eight olives in there because basically i just you know <laughs> martinis are just an excuse to eat olives for me more or less um vodka soaked olives or or spirit soaked olives rather yes yes precisely which they make, are which makes them way better in my opinion oh yeah no no it's it's a whole other level of of taste and then you get just like the, the little bit of the uh of, of the citrus in there from the from the mm. peel and ah uh, great um but let us press on so as previously mentioned lord of the rings themed episode uh chris you have chosen our main topic of discussion. Uh, why don't you let us know the title of the article, uh, author, where it comes from, and then uh, lead us into it. That's right. So the article I selected was titled St. Augustine and J.R.R. Tolkien, and it was written by Brad Berzer. Now, Brad Berzer is a professor of history at Hillsdale College and a senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, which is where I found the article. And Brad actually holds a special place in my heart because I probably wouldn't be on this podcast if it weren't for Brad, because Brad was a visiting scholar at my university, and he's the reason I um, attended the conference uh, at which I met Brevin. So um, we have him to thank for this episode. Um, I didn't know that. I don't think you mentioned that. That's so cool. He brought brought, uh, ISI to my university. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So... And and I I trust him. He's he's an amazing speaker, and and I just I hear his voice in in this article, and it was an amazing article. So I will get right into its summary. Um, I think there was a, a quote of Tolkien's in the opening that I think is extremely important to say in its entirety. I look west, east, north, south, and I do not see Sauron, but I see that Saruman has many descendants. We hobbits have against them no magic weapons. Yet, my gentle hobbits, I give you this toast. To the hobbits, may they outlast the Saruman's and see spring again in the trees. Truly, um, Berzer is showing that Tolkien had um, many things to wince at with with regards to his uh, contemporary understanding of civilization in the 50s. That quote was from the 50s, by the way. And... um, you know, among those things were uh, consumer capitalism and communism, both of which were forms of materialism. He, uh, Tolkien, being didn't uh, find particularly tasteful, and I think he even cited uh, Joseph Stalin's Joseph Stalin's participation in the Tehran conference, saying um, the elimination of tyranny and slavery, oppression and intolerance uh, were Joseph Stalin's words. Emptier words, in my opinion, have never been spoken since. Uh, given what we know about Joseph Stalin now. But Tolkien had these ideologues uh, in the East to contend with, and the unfettered mass production and self-satisfaction of America and the West uh, to contend with. And 
you know, the outlook was rather bleak. And Berzer compares this with St. Augustine, writing back in the 5th century, uh, and he witnessed the onslaught of barbarians tearing through Rome's gates. And uh, one can find, at least Berzer contends, a lot of similarities between uh, Augustine's The City of God and Tolkien's Many Tales. In fact, this is more of a aside in the article, but Tolkien would have become quite familiar with St. Augustine in his time at the Birmingham Oratory, where he did his grade school, which was founded by John Henry Newman, who was a um, pretty famous Catholic convert and very well studied in St. Augustine. Now, Newman would write, inspired by St. Augustine, that the doom of the 19th century liberalism, secularism, and philosophical utilitarianism foretold the the bleak circumstances that Tolkien would find himself in the 20th century. And uh, Tolkien would get to experience those terrible manifestations of those philosophies when he participated in World War One. And I think, if I may quote some of the two towers, I think is particularly salient here. Uh, the gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and gray, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire-blasted and poison-stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. And that's from the two towers. And you could hardly tell that he was writing about, of course, he was writing about the desolate land between the dead marshes and the mountains of shadow, which form the border of Mordor. It seems to bear quite a resemblance to the artillery-stricken trenches of the Somme during the World War One. So here enters again in, in Berzer's article, Augustine's City of God. Of course, Augustine writes about two cities in his City of God. He writes of, of course, the City of God and also the City of Man. Um, and, and Augustine wrote that these two cities were intertwined till Judgment Day would affect their separation, and that Christians exist in the city of man, but only as citizens of the city of God. And Tolkien, of course, being a student of St. Augustine, he, in his tales, would split it up a little bit differently. So Tolkien had, or Berzer posits that Tolkien had three cities in his, in his tales of Middle-earth. One being the city of God, which, as I'll get into later, or as the article gets into later, is sort of incarnate in the Fellowship of the Ring. The second city, the city of man, would be kind of embodied by Orthanc under Saruman. And the third city, which of course is unique to Tolkien and um, a departure from St. Augustine, is the city of the devil, which um, in the Silmarillion is Baradur under Sauron. And so Berzer in his article starts going through the each of these three cities uh, in Tolkien's lore and comparing them to St. Augustine's understanding. So the first, the city of the devil. Sauron is sort of commonly understood as the main antagonist in The Lord of the Rings, but really he's, um, many, many may not know, he's only the lieutenant of the prime evil in the lore of Middle-earth. The prime evil being Morgoth, who is sort of a uh, fallen angel akin to Satan. Morgoth, like Satan, was good by God's creation and wicked by his own will, in the words of St. Augustine. Of course, St. Augustine wasn't talking about Morgoth, but rather Satan. Elrond would have said something similar. He said, for nothing is evil in the beginning. So there we kind of see the first, the first evidence of St. Augustine's theology in Tolkien. So a big theme, I think, with The Lord of the Rings is everything is sort of um, everything that is evil was once good and is sort of corrupted and twisted by 
by the forces of pride and greed. So the city of the devil for, for Tolkien is the city of Baradur, which Sauron and the Silmarillion lords over and issues hordes of orcs out of to, to condemn and uh, scourge the rest of Middle-earth. Now I guess we'll move on to the city of man. Saruman lo lorded over Orthanc, which is uh, Berserk contends represents the city of man. And um, Saruman was an interesting character. So Saruman, many may not know, he's spoke of as a wizard in The Lord of the Rings, but really he's sort of a lower level angel by the higher level angels to Middle Earth to kind of in, in to help the inhabitants of Middle Earth fight against the fight against the evils of Sauron. What's interesting about Saruman, though, he was sent, obviously he was sent with Gandalf and some other um, wizards, but Sar Saruman was corrupted by his pride and his jealousy. Gandalf, fav Gandalf acquired favor with the elves, and that kind of helped stoke Saruman's lust for power. So in St. Augustine's City of Man, those who inhabit the City of Man, they seek, and this is a quote, they seek an earthly peace in which all power of will is devoted to obtaining those things which are helpful to the earthly life, namely power and fortune. So Saruman kind of embodies this because as Saruman became jealous of Gandalf and uh, yearning for his own power in Middle-earth, he came to subjugate elves and nature in Orthanc and around Isengard to perform his deeds and, and enrich himself. And um, Tolkien would have seen this in his, in his contemporary life in the kind of the growing of the administrative state and the the bureaucracy and just the the attitudes of the century that you know we could uh, overcome nature and human design and perfect things through bureaucracy yeah hot take every single urukai is is actually just um like a like a bureaucrat the the urukai are bureaucrats completely um, amazing yeah Head yeah. Candidate accepted yeah i think that's i think that's about right like basically saruman which you know, you could you could attribute Saruman to any any number of contemporary political figures in in Tolkien's life, but Saruman was bending the will, and 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 the Urukai, in fact, were um, sort of a crossbreed of orcs and man, and so even that sort of sort of speaks to the the twisting of of God's nature towards the uh, towards the purposes of power and evil. So, so Saruman really embodies that, and um, there's a couple of of manifestations of that. So. The orcs of Orthanc were, like I said, tortured and corrupted elves, and they came to despise all things beautiful. And really, their their existence in Middle Earth was sort of sort of the product of of the pride of Saruman and and of Sauron. Also, in their time, especially you notice in the um, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you see uh, Isengard becomes such a a center of of industry and of disregard for the surrounding nature and they used all this to fuel the their mechanized war operation in his attempted domination of both the creatures and nature uh, with this industry and progress berzer's kind of comparing saruman to the modern man just our obsession with with progress namely and and science to sort of uh, accomplish and and make life easy and basically gain power over nature and over each other and of course, Tolkien would have seen this in the uh, kind of terribly amazing uh, military might of artillery and tank warfare and trench warfare. So with that, we get onto the city of God, which which is probably most beautifully displayed in Tolkien's Middle Earth. 
and he says, the way to defeat Morgoth and Sauron and evil more generally is to humble yourself and give up your selfish will. Um, and the Fellowship of the Ring, though it's not really a city necessarily, is really the the embodiment of, of St. Augustine's The City of God. And uh, in, in that sense, it's also uh, the church. Berzer gives a few examples of this. The first being Aragorn. So Aragorn, he appears first as Strider in the Fellowship of the Ring, and he knows all along that he's the rightful heir to Gondor and essentially the the king and the lord of all of Middle-earth. But he appears as Strider and is extremely humble in his in his service to the uh, hobbits. And all of this is for the purpose of, of uh, eradicating evil from Middle-earth. So he's He's really the embodiment of, of humbling oneself to perform God's work, as Augustine would see it. And the hobbits are another great example. So the hobbits are sort of the, you know, they're kind of the least of the least of these of God's creatures, and especially in Middle Earth. Yet they're um, they kind of have an equally high calling in uh, the Lord of the Rings, and I think that's evidence of Saint Augustine's theology in that. Um, the economy of grace, which is sort of the the place and time we all find ourselves in, Augustine would say that um, one must orient their desires toward desires and love toward God. Tolkien doesn't really name God in the Lord of the Rings, and he kind of speaks more generally about that economy of of grace concept. And um, this is really most evident in in probably one of the most famous Lord of the Rings quotes. And, and I'll quote it: um, "I wish it need not have happened in my time," said Frodo. "So do I," said Gandalf and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And so this is sort of sort of almost as close to referencing uh, God as a person that Tolkien ever gets. And Tolkien, he does this quite a lot though, but he talks about time being given to them and their place in that time and that space also given to them. And who who is giving it to them, uh, Tolkien doesn't mention, but um, it's sort of implied that their their time and history is given to them by God. So, in conclusion, um, the article is really kind of a starts off comparing Saint Augustine and his theology as written in the City of God to sort of that theology's manifestations in Middle Earth and in Tolkien's lore in general. But it kind of trails off into some some other just theological uh, subjects that you could, one could find in The Lord of the Rings. And I will finish with what I saw was another really good quote. This one, I believe, being from The Two Towers as well. And it is, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And Berzer really clings to this 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 quote because he thinks Sam, he takes Sam as really the true hero of the Lord of the Rings in that Sam really, Sam is really just looking for the good life. He just wants to sit down with his garden and his wife and his large family and drink a beer and enjoy those, those good things. But when the calling comes to him to take up his sword and fight the good fight, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't shy away. And I think that's really the lesson of the Lord of the Rings and of Sam being just that, um, humble servant of the Lord and uh, really taking up his calling and, and uh, fulfilling it. So, yeah, no, I, I think that that Sam as the, as a true hero and also the person who fulfills the good life, like what all of the fighting was for was, was to protect Hobbiton and what right. the, 
and what the life in Hobbiton is. And even someone like Frodo, who, you know, he's brave and he does good things and he's essential and he's important, but he doesn't get to enjoy the good life partially because you could say because of corruption or maybe mm-hmm. just, you know, plot, who knows. But, you know, he he has to go off and, and he doesn't get to, um, you know, experience right. the the full fullness of it. And that's something that we've come to several times in this podcast, I think talking about eudaimonia and like, what is the good life? And of course it's, you know, my cousin and his porch and his beer brewing and his, uh, you know, his cigars and board games, like that's as good as you're going to get. And I think that the way that this article talks about, talks about Tolkien seeing Saruman's as the real enemy that we're facing, that it's not, you know, like dominant, violent, obvious evil. It's creeping bureaucratic, reshaping evil um you know that is just the undercurrent of society is a is a good angle to take well and i think if i may so in the article it also references tom bombadil and and tom's sort of a forgotten figure because he doesn't appear in the movies and uh peter jackson basically said he was he was an afterthought and really had no place in the books and um, you know who is he to say in my opinion but but the article mentions that Tom Bombadil was among the bear, the among the best when it came to countering the the power of the ring, and he says that because uh, Tom already had a life that he felt was fulfilling, and he he didn't yearn for anything. He didn't yearn for the power the ring would bring him. He didn't yearn for any of that, um, and that's really so. Tom also kind of embodies the good life that uh, that Sam was was yearning for. Steven, if you're talking, you're muted. Whoops, I was double muted. Uh, oh, I was gonna say, oh yes. Yeah, so Brevin, I think I brought up the uh, the article. Oh, this was quite a few session, um, podcasts ago. Uh, Tolkien's imagination of uh, of the good uh, by Doctor Bilbra. Ah, yeah, oh, yeah. That that was one of your first your first podcasts. It was. Oh, uh, do you remember the strawberries, Frodo? Yes. Do you oh, remember yep. the taste that, of strawberries. That was it. The taste of strawberries. Yes, and. The fact that the Lord of the Rings is so remarkable in its imagination of the good life that so many uh, books, both in the fan- fantasy genre, but just whatever genre it is, do a really good job imagining evil, but not a very good job imagining good that is actually desirable. And that's something that Tolkien just seems to naturally do. His mm. his character's vision of life is something that is uh, lovely and desirable. It's it's the eudaimonia that, that Brevin... Uh, I brought up, and that might tie in also to, and it's to be fair, it's it's been a little bit since I've read the trilogy, but that might tie in a little bit with even the like a Frodo character who takes a more combative or compromising role, maybe towards evil, or just like in, engages with it more closely. Is that that there is something that you still sacrifice there that that has a cost, which is you have yeah. to depart from the world early. Hmm. Maybe maybe Tolkien would compare uh, his character like Frodo to that of like a martyr uh hmm. in that you know martyrs seldom get to experience the good life they fight so hard for and give ultimately give their life for but um frodo is sort of although he doesn't give his life as you said he doesn't necessarily ever get to enjoy the good life that sam gets to enjoy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but instr- instrumental nonetheless yeah uh absolutely uh switching gears for a quick set your second to last point um that God or uh, Luvatar, especially pri- primarily within the Lord of the Rings trilogy, is not really brought up at all. Um, and yet, or and also, it's, it should be noted that there is no. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's any sort of uh, religion in the Lord of the, in Middle Earth. Um, there is no kind of concept of worship necessarily um, right. or organized That's religion. Actually, a very interesting point. 
I don't know if I've consciously made that connection because even like you know uh, George R. R. Martin or whatever, it, it, it it's relevant because in a different chat that we're in simultaneous to this podcast, we're making fun of him. You know, Chad uh, Tolkien versus Virgin R. R. Martin, uh, but you know most most it seems most fantasy books at least these days try to make some kind of attempt at you know like oh there's the established church and they're obviously wrong what will our free thinking heroes do when they encounter well, them brevin if i may i think i think a lot of that stems from the fact that especially people like george rr R. martin a lot of their fantasy air quotes comes from sort of a just a twisting of medieval culture and i think and so that they don't have quite the creativity that Tolkien brought to the fantasy world um, in that Tolkien's world isn't, I mean, it has elements of medieval culture in the sense that like, you know, even, even the Rohan language is old English and, but it's, it's so much more creative than that. And it doesn't, it doesn't rely on like religion as a theme because it just started from scratch rather than taking medieval <laughs> culture and twisting it like George R. R. Martin, for example. That is a good point that a lot of fantasy and, and, and Martin as a, you know, obvious touch point that everyone knows is like, there are things you can do when you're writing to give your readers a touch point that like, oh, this is like that other thing that I know about. And then that gives them some frame of reference. But I, I mean, now that I think about it and I, I, you know, I'm free to be corrected by our single listener if they want to correct me but are you saying I, that the listener doesn't have a significant other or just that there's one listener uh just just that there's one of them okay or or there may be many and none at the same time it's you know they're schrodinger's listener who knows um but uh i don't want to overstate my case because i I'm, i i haven't read it recently enough but i would be interested in exploring if tolkien makes fewer touch points than other typical fantasy authors have that he doesn't say like, oh yeah, this is like that thing that you remember from history class when we talked about feudalism or whatever, you know? Well, I think, I wonder, I mean, it's almost to Tolkien's credit that he makes, he probably makes more touch points, but they're way more subtle and they're way more like, they they speak way more to the actual like truth of living in this world rather than, you know, just some sort of historical, like rather than just like a banal historical touch point. Does that make sense? Like yeah, his yeah. touch points are things like, you know, the super, super underlying theology in, in Tolkien and, and in Middle Earth relating to St. Augustine. Like, that's a touch point that I think adds a lot of value, whereas, like, you know, culture and religion generally resembling, you know, medieval times, like in George R. R. Martin, that's like, that's less of a substantial touch point. Does that make sense? I, I wonder if another way of phrasing it would be that I... Tolkien has an actual philosophy and theology baked into his world that is actually that that is consistent throughout. He is working with a rich tradition of Christian ethics, especially a la Saint Augustine. Whereas Martin, he is creating a mythos. I'm, I I know Martin's books have a lot of religions in them. I'm not sure if it's I'm not sure if there are actual gods or if the gods are just made up and. It's a it's a godless universe that religions are are worshiping nothing. Um, but regardless, he's making a mythos of sort, but doesn't have any underlying philosophy that unites it all together. And maybe that's the touchstone: is we all understand religion, and you know whether or not religion is false is besides the point. We understand what that system is, and so when we mm. see that within Martin, we see oh, religion, we get that. But when we read Token, we don't need these more physical 
touch points. We have a philosophical touch point. We understand the breadth of the ideas that Tolkien is working with because he's coming from such a rich theological and philosophical background. Hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's mostly true. And I think um, I think that provides for a much more like transporting fantasy experience because he's not relying on the like uh, relating to the reader in terms of like, you know, things they understand culturally, like religion um, and, and, you know, touch points in history, but but rather way more deeply. And so you're able to kind of occupy a whole nother world and it doesn't resemble Earth or present day very much. Only it only resembles it insofar as the theology and philosophy are the same. So it's really it's a lot more transporting that way, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I think so. If I can transition us into a different angle talking about Saruman's and specifically his his orcs the Urukai. uh one thing that I noticed throughout this article was just him talking about how the orcs and and, and this goes to the distinction between Sauron being the city of evil or of the devil and then the city of man and that's and as Tolkien observes our primary foe for lack of a better word on earth and the fact is that orcs are particularly Saruman's orcs are very different from like primordial or pagan evils in that they're consciously created they're mechanistic they're consumptive they're not evil spirits they're like very physical they're very involved with the world to a gross degree if you watch the movies and you know they like pop out of sacks or whatever and that you know that says i think that depiction holds fairly accurate ac across the original trilogy of movies and then what Tolkien's philosophy of them was. Um, but then also pr proves, and it's sort of demonstrated through this, that why The Hobbit, with its masses of CGI orcs, was such a mistake. And the heavy makeup and like real people going around doing real human movements with real weight to them of the original trilogy was yeah. like the actual way to do evil. That, that you can't turn like this very real physical evil into computerized you know, images exactly yeah that's man that's a rant for another time but um yes if i may i think i think there's a quote that's in the article but it's but it's from the two towers um i, I think it's it's uh salient right now if i may so uh i begin saruman had slowly shaped it to his shifting purposes and made it better as he thought being deceived for all those arts and subtle devices for which he forsook his former wisdom and which fondly he imagined were his own came but from Mordor, so that what he made was not only a little copy, a child's model or a slave's flattery of that vast fortress, armory, prison, furnace of great power, Baradur, the dark tower, which suffered no rival and laughed at flattery, biding its time secure in its pride and its immeasurable strength. I think that that kind of touches on that in, in that Saruman thinking he was, you know, aggrandizing himself with his you know his visions of power and 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 glory and fame and riches and things like that really he was you know doing the work of the devil all along and was really just sort of a pawn in in Sauron's scheme and, and Saruman would actually approach Gandalf um, and say hey we were we were sent here to bring order to this land well like I may have compromised my means of doing so but but look at how easy it will be to attain our ends. And mm. of course, Gandalf was like, no, that's that's not right. And uh, so Saruman, thinking he was, you know, in his pride, he was accomplishing the, the ends he was sent to Middle-earth for. Really, he was he was doing the bidding of Sauron all along. So, yeah, I mean, kind of twas ever thus, I suppose. That's always been the uh, kind of struggle is what 
deals to be made to get to the end goal sooner. Uh, the only question is at what cost? I mean, that's um, Faustus right there to be able to gain knowledge, but at the cost of his soul. I, I'm actually re- re- reminded, uh, I, I suppose I'll just hop into politics for one real quick sec. Um, the, uh, I know, right? Uh, in 2016, during the whole Trump election, uh, when Trump was uh, particularly courting um, Christian and ge- Christian voters in general, and then evangelical voters in particular, and there was a um, uh, an art an article saying very along very similar lines that um, the offer of power uh, that, that that Trump was primarily offering Christians power, um, and that they would kind of be able to re kind of reimage a lot of American culture that they understandably saw was being eroded that they're con- they're their influence on culture, their vision of culture was lamentably being lost uh, in Trump offering power. And the article cautioning against that and saying that that's not, that's not how it's done. That's not how Christians are supposed to work. And I think in a, in a similar way, that's oftentimes uh, in that particular situation, but also in general, the, the temptation is ever to, to seize something rather than to influence it. Um, and so uh, Saruman's uh, desire to seize power, to seize the world and then re reimage it um, to, to take that, that short and easy road instead of the, the longer, more difficult, uh, but gentler road. I think that is kind of ever the, the, the temptation that we, we humans uh, struggle with. I, I think that also ties in with another part of the article where he's just talking about the difference between modern man and the barbarians. So the modern man that Tolkien and C.S. Lewis confronted and the, barbarians that saint augustine saw which was and the the quote is uh, from c.s lewis quote i sometimes wonder whether we shall not have to reconvert men to real paganism as a preliminary to converting them to christianity end quote and the argument is just that uh, with the modern man the belief is so shallow and so confident that the distance in between power and you know that that any politician can offer and christianity there's such a short jump in between ah if we just take control then we can make christianity work that's real easy or saruman if we just establish order and that that's an easy thing to do, we'll just slap some Urukai over there, slap some bureaucrats, and that the greater risk to our souls and to the world is in some kind of shallow, overconfident ideology rather than uh, what he's calling paganism, which is, you know, a, a preliminary to Christianity in some ways, but, you know, just a belief in a deep belief in larger things that you can't control. And it's this shallowness of so much modern ideology that makes it attainable that you're just like, oh, yeah. We can sacrifice a couple things along the way. Like, we'll, we'll we'll get to the end point in no time, you know. But opposed to that are, like, deeper things that are beyond you that you can't attain that sort of force you to recognize your place in the universe and also, like, the value of partial service and contribution and work over time that is just so alien to people who are like, oh, you know, got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet, uh, and then we'll get to utopia and history ends there. Well, yeah, I think that's mostly right. And I think... Tolkien and St. Augustine would say that the process, or, or pagans rather, are so much further away from their pride that Tolkien and St. Augustine really attribute, um, maybe not Tolkien so much, but Berzer anyways, and St. Augustine attribute that uh, the evil, at least of Saruman and the city of man, to pride predominantly. And so pagans at least have that first step of acknowledging their puniness in the world. Um, and that's really like, you know, that gets you pretty close to Christianity in many senses, whereas like modern man contends with, you know, feeling like uh, there's an amazing word, uh, suzerain, basically a lord that's sort of outside of control of all other lords. Um, and so modern man really believes himself to be 
uh, a suzerain, which I think is a word from um, uh, Blood Meridian, if I'm not mistaken. But so modern man really believes himself to kind of uh, control their own destiny in a way that's totally counter counterintuitive to Christianity. And I think that's what what Berzer and and Saint Augustine would say is the the reason for that uh, the ease of which paganism converts mm -hmm. to to uh, Christianity rather than the modern man. Yeah, well, I I mean the the pagan fear of this massive dark world on all sides that's outside of your understanding and control is a short step away from the fear of God in in at least some ways. Uh, but speaking of oh, a wait. okay. All right, all right, all right. All right. Are, are we transitioning? Because I had a great transition. All right, all right, all right. Stephen, I cede to you the transition. Well, you're 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 too kind, and I I wonder what with the the new barbarian, as it were, the the fifth century barbarian that perhaps would have been uh, gentler to Christianity, still caused the horrors of the Dark Ages. And I wonder with this new barbarian, if in fact we are waiting not for a Godot, but for another, doubtless very different, Saint Benedict. Oh, it all comes around. Hey, ten out yeah, of ten. that was about it. No, all it right, wasn't right, an right. actual transition. But then again, in my defense, Nate, there are yours. So, all right. Well, speaking of actual transitions, uh, <laughs> Stephen, I believe you have some kind of a hot take for us. Uh, a hot take? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, well, wait. Are we talking hot takes on the article, or just hot takes on Lord of the Rings in general? Uh, we're we're transitioning away from the article. Okay, hot takes on Lord of the Rings, indeed. And this is my fa probably my favorite fan theory of all times, maybe second to uh, Jar Jar as a Sith Lord. Uh, and that is that Gandalf always intended to uh, use the eagles to drop the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. Uh, and I won't go into the, the nitty-gritty details, but uh, basically, as all fan theories are wont to do, uh, it takes uh, a very, uh, you know, scraps of uh, textual evidence and uh, loosely ties them together to argue that uh, Gandalf, Gandalf was not stupid. He realized that uh, a, a journey on foot across hostile territory into the uh, enemy land itself uh, was a uh, like pretty much a suicide move and that flying using the eagles would have been a much safer maneuver. Uh, and so he gathers the uh, the fellowship and they strike out to one of the main eagle nests. But unfortunately, due to Saruman's redirecting them, they get shoved down into Moria. They have to traverse the horrors of Moria. And finally, when uh, the Balrog uh, smites him down, he hadn't shared it with anyone because he knew that there was uh, possible hostiles within the fellowship uh, itself, as evidenced by him warning Frodo about um, uh, about Boromir, or just kind of more vaguely just referencing he fears from within. So he he did have, and he, indeed he did have cause. He was afraid that if he told the fellowship about this plan, that they would spill it and then all would be lost because then Mordor would just marshal their defenses. So when the Balrog smites him and he's about to fall, he says, hoping that they'll understand, fly, you fools, trying to tell them to actually, uh, you know, go with the eagles. Uh, and when he comes back as Gandalf the White, he, of course, has lost a lot of his memories, does not remember that his original plan was to use the eagles and to go find Frodo and, you know, have him use eagles. And so we uh, see at the very end, the climactic battle, Gandalf has finally... Uh, gotten that part of it, calls the eagles into combat to, to start taking down the uh, the Nazgul, all the while Frodo having to do the actual difficult job of walking to Mount Doom himself. So, Gandalf actually did intend to use the eagles. The entire time. Uh, that's great. No, the uh, so I've, I've heard versions of that theory before, but not the part that he lost, because it's true, he did lose memories when he transitioned uh, yeah. to be to being Gandalf the White, but that that clinches it. I, I, I like it. Absolutely. 
think there's a, there's a scene in one of the movies where the way they kind of play it off is they they make it sound like Gandalf forgot something, like as a as a convenience to him, like he's pretending like he forgot, but. But like I'm pretty sure how it's written in the book is that he actually just didn't remember, and and the scene in the movie makes it sound like he was just saying he didn't remember for expedience sake. Kind of mm-hmm. made me mad. I can't yeah, think I of mean, specifically, but huh? Interesting. People actually claimed that it was more just kind of him saying it tongue in cheek. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's how the that's how the film portrayed it. Like that it was gotcha. it was intended by the film to make it look like that, but mm. totally not so. Yep. Well. Speaking of things being totally not so, Chris, I believe you have some kind of a hot take for us. Yeah, so mine doesn't depart far from the article, but uh, I think I think it's hot enough. I couldn't help but think, um, at least in you know Berger's understanding of Saruman, that Saruman really embodies like the he's the epitome of a bureaucrat in a sense. Like he hopes to enrich society as a whole with his with his clever devices, and who. Who better in modern memory than Lord John Maynard Keynes than to represent Saruman as the epitome of the bureaucrat? Um, and so I think not that uh, not that Tolkien ever imagined this being the case, but um, I think one could make the case, or you could call it a fan theory, that uh, Saruman's really Lord Maynard Keynes in a white cloak, as he as he should have been all along. Mm, mm. And so what you're saying is, if I'm getting you correctly that uh, macroeconomic theory is actually just a giant pit that's vomiting f- forth orcs. Is that is that about where we're at? That's, that's about right. And I don't think macroeconomics in its entirety is a pit vomiting forth orcs, but rather th- those who think that they can understand economics in a macro sense to the point where they can write equations and... Um, and and sort of design and engineer society around that. Those are the folks that that uh, are really spewing forth the orcs. And I think there's macroeconomists who get it right, like Mises, for example, who wrote Human Action. He understands that economics is is the culmination of of you know the entire global population of of human psychology essentially um, and how they behave around their decisions. And so that type of macroeconomist understands that he can't. He can never write an equation and engineer a better society around that kind of thing, other than to let the invisible hand do its work. Oh, I've got a, I've got a hot take right here. It's uh, so it sounds like uh, Keynes at all with their view of uh, the macro economy, uh, much like Sauron's view towards Middle Earth or Saruman's view towards Middle Earth, is about control, seizing, grasping. Revan, what does that sound like? That sounds like left brain or left hemisphere thinking to Freaking me. Freaking left brain hemisphere, left hemisphere thinking. It's the worst. Unbelievable. It pops up again. It pops up everywhere. My God. My God. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is that 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 boosting aggregate demand, right, Keynesian? I mm-hmm. think it's been yes. a long time. Uh, is 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 the same thing? And and hear me out. Like 100. Like like the Venn diagram is just a circle. Is the same thing as chopping down Fangorn forest. Mm. Did I get that right? I think it's more like it's the same thing as crossbreeding the man and the orc mm. into the Urukai. It's Ooh, aggregate demand. Like, I get it. No, yeah, that makes sense. 100%. The, the instrument of aggregate demand is, of course, taxation. And I think taxation is is embodied by the chopping down of Fangorn forest. And, and of oh. course, the citizens being the Ents. My um, God. It's such a complete metaphor. I, He's I, got I, it. 
I love it. This this needs to be like an undergraduate time. class, like one hundred percent. I'd take that class. It'd be better than I'd most of my class. undergraduate class. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of uh, classes, my contribution. I found some pretty fun theories that I could try and expound upon. Uh, such as that Tom Bombadil, which was brought up earlier, or who was brought up rather earlier in this article, is actually the Witch King. But oh my, I'd love to hear that. I I've heard that he's actually a Luvatar. I haven't heard that he's actually the Witch King. The the theory that he's a Witch King in in well, two Luvatar's sentences everywhere, is but... is just that his reaction to the ring is the same as the Witch King's. In that when Frodo puts it on, he can see it, and he's not affected by it, or something like that. Um, Except yeah. the Witch King puts the ring. On and if that happened, I mean that's that's the apocalypse right there. That's that's I, GG, bro. I don't remember. It like it, it's the textual evidence is there that they have the same reaction to it being near them or like being near someone who's wearing it. But beyond that, there's nothing else to, maybe, to connect them. And, and maybe like, that's evidence more towards the fact that Tom Bombadil is Iluvatar, um, which is the creator in in the Lord of the Rings uh, mythology, because that's sort of how God would react. Uh, to such a thing, Is, hmm. isn't that right? So that's almost just as much evidence of of Stevens well, now, than it is yours. Well, now I'm wanting to like compare Tom Bombadil to uh, Sunday in The Man Who Was Thursday, but that I I did not choose Tom Bombadil as my uh, as my topic. Uh, my my main topic is Lord of the Rings things that we didn't ask for, and I and I have two subheadings. The first is the Lord of the Rings TV show forthcoming from Amazon. So this is uh, set before the events of the novels and films. And apparently it has a five season commitment worth $1 billion. Holy cow. Which would make it the most expensive TV show ever. And I double checked this just because you can never really trust sites. But so Game of Thrones was apparently $1.5 billion in, in, in terms of production. But that was for eight seasons. So my guess is this is calculating it on like a per episode or per season basis. In which case, this would be the most expensive TV show um, of all time. Maybe, so maybe they'll use real costumes instead of CGI. They'll, they'll well, put that money to good work. But I'm, I'm not hedging my bets. I, no, I no. I'm not holding my breath there. Well, so 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 here's the thing: the setting is the Second Age. So this is going to be Numenor, the rise of Sauron, the Ring creation, and then the Last oh, wow. Alliance of, El- of Elves and Men. So that's all pretty cool and fun. It's also a lot of very big battles, epic battles, which does not bode terribly well in terms of cgi like i feel like a lot of the budget's just going to be dumped into there which after the hobbit i'm pretty sure no one is asking for more lord of the rings cgi armies yeah ever. you know i remember going into the last hobbit movie thinking well maybe at least i'll get some cool action scenes out of it and somehow they still disappointed me like i was expecting nothing out of the third hobbit and i was still let down and so i can't imagine yeah, if the, all they're going to do is throw a bunch of big battle scenes at us. I mean, I'm all for cool battle scenes. Helm's Deep was amazing, but... It was yeah. real. It, it was physical. It had yeah. weight. Can I, can I be honest for a second with you guys? No. Please do. Stop I haven't it. told anybody this. Honesty's bad. Oh, no. I've, I've never watched the third Hobbit. Oh, that's fine. That's no, no, fine. That's, no, you're a better offer. You're a better person for having not watched your, it. Your, your soul is less tainted. It, it's like, that's my contention, but... Yeah, it's like people, touching people the People tell me ring. as a self-respecting Lord of the Rings fan, I can't... No. I can't miss a movie, but I'm just like self-respecting. Who, who is this person, and where are and, and what's you're, their, you're a self-respecting Lord of the Rings fan? Therefore, you can't. didn't see it. Clearly, they're not worth my time. I don't. Know. They're not. Okay, cut well, that speaking, sort of toxic person out of your life. Well, speaking of not 
having time for that and also cutting toxic people out of your life, we also have a game that no one asked for. And this is a, wait for it, a stealth-based golem adventure that's branching. So, like, you run into all sorts of, like, situations uh, where you, like, can choose, oh, do I want to go the golem route or the smeagol route? And so I'm going to ask you guys, go ahead and go into the the general channel and just look at the two photos that i posted there these are screenshots from the game and so this is a stealth-based golem adventure it's for the switch and it basically just looks like a kid's animation which is like funny but also horrible because golem is like the darkest character if you think about it for two seconds my wife can't handle golem at all so so i just want to ask so the first picture that i posted any like how would you describe this art style or or this picture like what is what themes are evoked for you with this? Have you? What? He basically oh. reminds me of King Boomy from uh, from um, Avatar. That's like a pretty it's good sort description. Of, I like that. I like that. that animation. It's not. It's not quite anime, but it's like it's sort of very caricaturized. Gollum. Yeah. Like the I'm, eyes are too big. It's like sort of monkey-ish. See, yeah, I'm definitely. thinking, what if the folks at Studio Ghibli? got a massive budget to do 3D and then every single one of them simultaneously suffered a massive nervous breakdown and then <laughs> dropped acid. <laughs> I love it. That's that, that, that's I perfect. And if you myself. look at the second photo just briefly like it doesn't look that good. It it it, it looks really bad. Like they're obviously going for sort of like a kishi and and reader maybe we'll make or listener rather maybe we'll make this golem photo the cover photo. Um but if you look at it like the animation's not that good. Like this is this is several years ago at best, and they're obviously going for like a unified style, so it's like kind of kitschy. But I I just don't think it pulls it off. It it just doesn't look good. It's it weirdly cartoony for being such a dark character. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't I, quite I'm dive. Yeah. So in conclusion, we didn't ask for this, but this is what we get because because I'm going to link this all the way back to, to the article is uh, because what Tolkien feared is is exactly happening, that America would spread its, quote, sanitation, morale pep, feminism, and mass production throughout the world. And we're doing that every day, very effectively. Yeah, thanks a lot, feminism. You got us a video game about Gollum. Exactly. There's a one-to-one. All feminism's fault. <laughs> uh, I'd like, well, if I can, to oh. go back to the TV series, because they, as much as they can say that they're consulting the Tolkien family... Christopher Tolkien is passed, and obviously uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is passed, and those are the two real cultivators of, of the legendarium. So, like, who is it they're consulting, and like, what makes them, you know, what makes them actually qualified to keep the canon of Lord of the Rings, you know, true? I guess they they have to have gotten some like third cousin of Christopher Tolkien or something like that paid him a massive amount of money to just keep quiet and confirm that they talked to him once. His his, his name is Cousin Ed. He has an excellent Toyota car dealership in the middle of Missouri. <laughs> oh uh, he's he's read, I think, The Hobbit, or or at least it was read to him as a, as a child. He watched uh, the movie. No, well, yeah, yeah. He's he's seen The Hobbit movies for sure. Uh, the original trilogy was was kind of long. But then, uh, you know, you know, he he went to like uh, one or two family dinners, but only the ones that were stateside. And uh, and you know, he met Christopher once. So I would say, you know, I yeah. I, I, I very much, yeah, very cool, very legit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Anyways, well, I di I digress. Go ahead. Well, speaking of digressing, Chris, do you have a rant for us this evening? Yes, uh, and of course, it's sort of 
uh, Lord of the Rings themed. And actually, uh, I had a rant that was much different than the one that I'm about to tell you. But I was delivered this, uh, I guess, softball. Uh, so a friend of mine posts on Facebook. I'm going to quote. I'm not going to tell you her name, obviously. But she says, to my Christian friends, would anybody mind sharing thoughts on Harry Potter? To read slash watch or not to read slash watch? That is the question. And why or why not? And the first comment is another person I go to church with. Um, and she says, haven't read them. Wasn't allowed growing up. But I love the movies. Classic good versus evil. If you can do Lord of the Rings or Narnia, it's not much different. If you're old enough to understand fantasy versus reality, you'll be fine. So hopefully my rant is pretty self-explanatory from that. Um, I don't think equating Harry Potter to Lord of the Rings and Narnia in regards to uh, communicating Christian ethics is really a valid thing to say. And if I was more acquainted with these particular church friends, I might say something on this Facebook post. But of course, that gets nowhere. And I don't want to scare them with my with my passionate knowledge about Lord of the Rings. But really, how can you compare? How can you say that Lord of the Rings, anyways, is just, you know, the 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 moral of Lord of the Rings is good versus evil and good triumphs. And there we go. You you know, as a Christian, you should watch it because because it has that theme. Like that is so superficial and quite upsetting to me. Just just that. And then to compare it to Harry Potter, which I'll, I will acknowledge, I did not read Harry Potter and I've seen most of the movies. So maybe I'm not I'm not as qualified to uh, disparage this comparison. But I think I think it should be clear to those who have read both both series that the the depth of at least in, in a Christian sense, and I'm not comparing them in terms of literary value, although I have my own opinions on that. But in a Christian sense, Lord of the Rings really brings much more to the table in terms of the the ethics and the philosophy and the theology it brings, as we filled the whole podcast episode with. Whereas Harry Potter, I think you'd really have to grasp its strings to to find that kind of thing. So uh, my, I guess my rant is just Facebook being Facebook and my friends being uh, uncultured swine. <laughs> <laughs> we will never say no to ranting about the fr friends being uncultured swine. Though, to be fair, Harry Potter turns out to be a pretty serious Christ figure uh, at the very end of book seven. But uh, still, Tolkien certainly brings a lot more to the table. Yeah, see, uh, maybe I should have picked a different rant because I haven't read or watched anything relating to book seven. So, If our one listener does like Harry Potter, try not to hate us too much. Or or hate Chris. I mean, he. Yeah, just hate me. I'm I'm really just a guest, though. So. Yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> he's only on one episode for a reason. We invite guests of all uh, different uh, thoughts, opinions, patterns, and whatnot. No matter how valid here. or invalid they yeah, are. I'm really I'm really just the diversity the diversity inclusion. Like, yep. They had You're to have the... they had to have some engineer on to to make a fool of himself. We got to tick the box somehow. <laughs> yeah, no, no. You're uh, you're you're the token. Uh, Harry Potter hater. Uh, there we go. <laughs> I look forward to my repeat appearance on a later episode. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> to respond to all of the criticism after we <laughs> take down the last one. The Harry Potter themed episode. Have you had a Harry Potter themed episode yet? That's a no. Oh, that's, haven't. A, that's actually a really good idea. Although I should probably read the books. Um, you haven't read right. books. Have no. neither of you read the books? No, no, my my wife is still aghast that she married me, and I haven't read the books. I'm so. kind of surprised she did. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but speaking about being surprised, uh, last week I talked about brewing beer and how it's this fun, creative thing 
blah, 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 participating in creation, close to God, blah, 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 which is all very true. Uh, but at the beginning of this week, I was reminded that creation is a messy business. A series of errors on my part led to me losing about half of my partially fermented batch uh, as I was shifting it over into bottles. And myself and the floor just ended up covered in just sticky nastiness. And my two conclusions. Uh, first, check all of your goddamn equipment closely before attempting to use it, uh, which I did not, and I suffered for it heavily. And two, it will get better, and you will learn. With each batch that I've made, I've learned a few new things, made a few few, uh, a few fewer mistakes, and uh, you know, just made it slightly more sophisticated e each time to, as I can tell, better and better results. And of course, this is all for the sake of turning my apartment into a mini Hobbiton tavern, uh, so I must press on. But speaking of pressing on, Stephen. Speaking of pressing on, so I had two rants in mind, uh, one very irritable and one not very irritable, but the uh, the latter one I think I'm going to go with uh, quite simply because the the, uh, the former is going to be a repeated thing, so just you wait, listener, uh, I'll be ranting and raving in a bit. But uh, this week I quit my job and I have started grad school. And uh, several of my rants have involved, uh, you know, frustrations with bureaucracy, fr frustrations with uh, teammates and whatnot. Uh, but I will spend this particular rant to say that, man, for all the issues I had with uh, with my company and with my team and whatnot, uh, there is something uh, quite delightful about leaving a, uh, a workplace and realizing that you will actually uh, miss the people that you've worked with and the company that you've worked for. Uh, you will actually miss it quite a bit. Uh, so, uh that's that, I mean, pretty simple, uh, pretty basic, but I uh, received quite a few uh, kind of heartfelt uh, uh, goodbyes and whatnot, including a few saying that they wanted to keep the uh, you know keep the podcast going. So, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's been a long week. It has been a, a bit of a transition week, but man, uh, was that that an encouraging time? So, uh, rant uh, a good rant on uh, some awesome coworkers. Uh, those are those are certainly nice to have around. Very good. I, I like that. I, I find myself in much the same situation, actually. So, man, Good although a little bit earlier on than you. And I'm over here with nothing to look forward to. Oof. I'm sorry. My condolences. Just, just corporate hell, as far as I can see. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that concludes the Tolkien episodes. Uh, I don't know. I think that went pretty well. I what think so. Think? Yeah. I'd change a few things. <laughs> So would uh, we all. That sounds like a Saruman. What a Saruman would say to me. Yeah, that sounds like you're trying to control the podcast instead of influence it. You know, <laughs> this is a Hobbiton podcast. There's a uh, there's there's no changing anything, and everyone is drunk while conducting it. There's some good in this podcast, Mister Frodo, and it's <laughs> worth fighting for. Oh my God, that's brilliant. I don't think we can top that. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chris. Uh, Stephen, quick. L Lord of the Rings quote. I don't have one. Uh, boil and mash and stick them in a stew. <laughs> <laughs>